0: Next few Sundays. So Ephesians chapter one, we're gonna start in verse seven. We've read this whole passage numerous times, and so for the sake of time this morning, I'm gonna start in verse seven with the reading. In him, and, and that being Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, that we would understand that our Trinitarianism is Christ centered. That your Son is the one who has revealed you to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit fully and clearly. And that your Son is the one through whom we have fellowship with you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That He is the center of the Christian story. That He is the one we trust and obey. The one we follow and through whom we have access to you, our Father, by your Spirit, we pray that he would be exalted, that you would make him clearly exalted before our eyes this morning. If there Are any unbelievers here that they would see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ and so be saved? That we as believers would continue to have everything else we see eclipsed by our vision of your Son, Jesus. so that he might be the sun on the horizon of everything else we think. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Well, I spent the early part of my ministry um, as a pastor, really my first six years as a youth pastor, I think teaching a lot of right doctrine. I did youth ministry in a way that was not considered popular at the time, um, probably is not considered popular now, which is I exposited books of the Bible. I would take the youth in and I would teach a book of the Bible consecutively, um, systematically, probably 45, 50 minutes every Sunday. And, and it didn't seem to deter the size of the youth group. But I did that and I was quite happy with the fact that I was doing that. And I think I was getting doctrine right as I was doing it. And I, I believed certainly as I was doing it that Christ is all sufficient that Christ is glorious, that Christ is the object of our faith. However, as I reflected upon it, and the reason that I'm thankful those sermons weren't reserved for posterity via being recorded, is because I taught right doctrine. I exposited the biblical text, but in a manner that I did not set forth Christ as all sufficient and glorious and the object of our faith in everything I preached. I believed he was all-sufficient. I believed he was our savior. But I spoke much of God and of the Christian life as a man-centered affair. I didn't realize I was doing that. I would have rejected that label being applied to me. You're a man-centered preacher. If I was pressed as to what I believed at the time... I would have held largely the same doctrine I hold now. But my emphasis, my emphasis was clearly on what man did and what man should do. Even when I rightly condemned the sin of man or spoke of the holiness of God or exposited a section of the Bible, somehow my sight wandered away from Jesus. He dropped from view. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a British pastor of the 20th century, said, and I'm not quoting him directly, but indirectly said that a, really paraphrasing, that that the most pernicious error is the, the, the error of emphasis in the wrong place. That's why I resonate with John Newton. You guys know John Newton because you've sung Amazing Grace, right? A former slave ship uh, mate. I don't know if he was the captain or not. was definitely a trader of slaves who ended up repenting and becoming a pastor, was a man who ministered to William Wilberforce, who brought an end to the slave trade, was a man who ministered to William Cooper, who was a man he met in a mental institution because William Cooper was so oppressed with depression, nearly suicidal, um, that John Newton pastored him, becomes, William Cooper, as you know, a great hymn writer in the church. John Newton, this pastor, wrote that song, Amazing Grace. He said this about his ministry, and I resonate with it. I grieve to think, I grieve to think how often I have amused myself and my hearers And I I fear it has been little more. And how did he amuse himself and his hearers? This is what he said. With making grave remarks upon sin or holiness, which though I hope true in themselves and important in their proper places, have by my links of proofs, reasonings, and illustrations tended to hide the Savior from our view. I have since compared this mistake to that of a painter who in a historical piece should omit the principal figure. I've thought it like an attempt to point out the most striking parts of an extensive prospect at midnight. In future, when I preach, I wish when I preach, if I may so speak, to keep the sun in view above the horizon. Then I may hope that he will be seen by his own light and will likewise diffuse a light upon every part of my subject. If Christ is ever eclipsed or hidden in some way in our thoughts of God or our thoughts of ourselves, then our thinking is tragically misguided. Christ is our North Star, Christ is the norm by which everything we think about God and ourselves is normed. You know, you don't think of yourself, about yourself, in light of what Freud has to say to you, and the psychotherapy that's followed, and the therapeutic generation that now exists. And you don't think about God, on the basis of God, nakedly, not considered in Christ. Christ is the revelation of God. Thus, all your thoughts of God are normed by him. And Christ is man. He is man as man was created to be. Thus, all your thoughts of man are normed by him. Christ is the center of the Bible story. If Christ is ever occluded in my exposition of a text of scripture, if he is not always the principal figure, the sun on the horizon of every text, then I have failed to preach the truth as it is written. Thus, as we study the glory of our triune God and salvation, it is necessary, did you hear that? It is necessary that we speak of the centrality of Christ. When we began Ephesians 1, I said I wanted to demonstrate Paul's praise of God the Father for our Trinitarian salvation. I said in Ephesians 1, 3, look there, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that in Ephesians 1, 3, we get this general praise of God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that general praise is elaborated upon in verses 4 through 14. That's why verse 4 starts with, even as he... It's now elaborated on all the way through verse 14. And last week, last Sunday, we looked at the first facet of that elaboration. I said there are three facets to it the covenant of redemption or God's work in eternity. That's what I talked about last week. The historical outworking of that in time as Christ has come. And the contemporary outworking of that in the sense that it's being applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And so I said those are the three facets. Last week, we looked at Paul praising the Father for our Trinitarian salvation that was decreed by God before the foundation of the world. And if you want to understand that more, which I encourage you to, go back and listen to last week's sermon if you did not hear it. But today, I want to look at the second facet of our Trinitarian salvation for which Paul is praising the Father. And to do so, we will look at Ephesians 1, verses seven through 12. And what is that second facet? Paul is praising the Father for historically, catch that, in history, historically lavishing upon us his love and grace in the work of Christ. That's the second facet. The first facet is he eternally decreed to lavish his love and grace upon us in Christ. That's the first facet. The second facet is he historically lavished His love and grace upon us in the person and work of Christ. So last week we looked at our Trinitarian salvation in eternity, and in doing so we focused on the loving and gracious decree of the Father. Today we're going to look at our Trinitarian salvation in history. My uh, spell check changed this to salivation in history. We didn't salivate in history. Hopefully I fix that before you get those who ask for my notes, get my notes, right? (laughs) Because I don't mean we salivate. in We do salivate, but that's not what I'm talking about. We are looking at the historical work of the Trinity in saving us. That's what we're looking at. And in doing so, we're focusing on the work of the Son. Next week, we're going to look at the contemporary work of the Trinity in saving us. And so we'll look at the work of the Holy Spirit. But as we turn to the historical work of our Trinitarian salvation, I want you to keep in mind, note, this whole section is doxology. It's all praise to the Father. Throughout the passage, Paul's worshiping the Father. He's praising the Father, and he's worshiping the Father in a manner, I want you to catch this, Paul is worshiping the Father, praising the Father in a manner that is Christ-centered. I hope you caught that. Paul's praise to the Father is a Christ-centered praise. The whole work of salvation, the whole work of redemptive history from eternity past through the contemporary application of the Holy Spirit to your hearts is a Christ-centered work. That's why if if he's ever eclipsed in our preaching or in our thoughts about God or our thoughts about man, we're missing the boat. We're getting it wrong because it's all Christ-centered. Look at verse three. I'm just gonna walk through the verses. Blessed be the God and Father of who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Father, but how do we? Uh, does Paul identify him and praise him? As the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, even in his fatherness that he's praising, he's praising him as the Father of someone, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice, who has blessed us who? How? In Christ with every spiritual blessing in the, bless, in the heavenly places. Even in his general praise, he's Christ-centered. Verse four, even as he chose us, the Father chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Look at verse five. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Look at verse six. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us In the beloved, that's Jesus. Look at verse seven. In him, that's a connecting to the beloved. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Look at verse nine. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Look at verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him. That's in Christ. Look at verse 11. In him, in Christ, we've obtained an inheritance. Look at verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Look at verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You notice the Christ-centered nature of the passage? Why is it so Christ-centered? Because it is Christ who brings us to the Father. Jesus is the mediator. Understand this. The Father is being praised here. But how do you have access to the Father? Through the Son. Our salvation is Trinitarian. But we speak of Jesus as our Savior, don't we? For the Son is the one who came to accomplish historical work of our salvation yet the whole trinity was involved the father sent him and the spirit empowered him but the son was the one who was born of a woman born under the law crucified resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the father as our savior and king and i think it's important here to say that our worship thus is necessarily christ-centered It is always in praise of our Trinitarian Lord, knowing that we have access, Ephesians 2.18, we have access to the Father through the Son in or by the Holy Spirit. And while every person of the Trinity is at work in every facet of our salvation, they each have different facets of that salvific work that are eminently attributed to them. The Father is eminently attributed the work of election. The Son is eminently attributed with the work of redemption. The Holy Spirit is imminently attributed with the work of sanctification or applying what the Father planned and the Son carried out to you. The Father is praised as the source, the fount, the one who elects us in Christ and sends the Son and the Holy Spirit to carry out the salvific work. The Son is praised as the one who historically carries out that work of salvation, the Redeemer. The Holy Spirit is praised as the one who contemporarily applies the eternal election of the Father and the historical redemption of the Son to our hearts. But please pay attention to the fact that the Son is imminently attributed with the work to which the Father elects and to which the Holy Spirit empowers and applies. Do you hear that? Thus Christ is central. We trust Christ, we preach Christ, we follow Christ, we obey Christ, and we do so in or by the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. And today I want to look at three Christ-centered causes. Hear that? Three Christ-centered causes of Paul's praise to the Father, or three reasons, if you will, that the Father is praised for the historical work of Christ in saving us. So here's the first reason, or cause, of, the, of Paul's praise in the Father. The first one is this. An infinitely gracious redemption has been purchased by Christ. hear that? An infinitely gracious redemption has been purchased by Christ. Look at verse 7. In him we have. I just want to stop there. Notice those four words. The first two, in him. In him This is a a pronoun connecting us back to the beloved in verse six, who is also, we know, Jesus Christ in verse five. In other words, grammatically, in him is pointing to the beloved or to Jesus Christ. In Jesus is another way to translate verse seven. In Jesus, in the beloved, we have, notice that language, we have present tense. In our text right now, beginning of verse seven, The verb tense has changed from what we call the aorist or past tense to the present tense. And the subject changes from the father or he, if you notice in verse uh, four, even as he chose us, verse five, he predestined us, okay? The subject changes to the father, to us, verse seven, in him we have. So why does the change happen? Why does the subject change? And why does the verb tense change? Because this eternally considered love and grace of God for which he is praised in verses four, five, and six is now ours. The infinite grace of God toward us in eternity past is something we apprehend only by faith. It's something we waited for as a promise. It was in types and shadows and promises and oaths in the Old Testament. But now Christ has come. In the fullness of time, he came, and we now receive that infinite storehouse of grace. Say, didn't the Old Testament saints receive it? Yes, they received it as those looking forward, but it's historical accomplishment through which it is poured out in history, is now. The grace covenanted by the Trinity to us in eternity past is now poured out upon us in the historical work of the Son. So what does this grace promised in eternity past now bring us by the purchase of Christ? Look at the next phrase. In him we have redemption through his blood. Did you catch that? And then here's a a modification of the statement redemption through his blood or a a way to, to narrow that down, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So we're redeemed. That word redemption means to be bought back, to be purchased from slavery to sin, from death, from eternal perdition. We've been purchased, how? Through his blood, by the shedding of Christ's blood. He atoned for us. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His violent death upon the cross is our redemption. And specifically, Paul narrows it down and focuses in on the forgiveness of our sins. Some of your versions might say, the forgiveness of our sins. I think it's better our trespasses. Now, that's not all redemption is, is the forgiveness of sins, okay? I don't want you to think that's all that redemption is. But that's what Paul wants to focus on here. Okay, He's redeemed us, now he wants to focus specifically on the forgiveness of our sins or our trespasses. And that Greek word trespasses is is focusing on our rebellious violation of the law of God. In other words, rebellion against God's holy law. We have all violated God's law. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And in our sin, we have incurred a debt of justice. Justice is owed to our sins. And sin against an infinitely holy God incurs an infinite debt. You follow that? The sin is made greater by whom it's against. You know how you know that? You know that even in human justice. If I plot to shoot you, I might go to jail for a long time. If I plot to shoot the president, things get anteed up, don't they? because of the value of the person by whom you're sinning against. You say, well, we're all ontologically valuable. Our being, we're all the same value. The president's life is of no more value than mine. Yes, but that's not what we're talking about in the justice system, are we? We understand there's something to that position. Now, let me say this. God in being is greater than you. Infinitely so. And in position, he is greater than you. Infinitely so, and sin against him incurs an infinite debt. And Paul is saying that Jesus paid that debt for us. Through his blood. When he went to the cross, he suffered your debt in your place. He owed no debt. Jesus was holy, sinless, undefiled, tempted in every way, yet without sin. He owed nothing. He went to the cross to incur the debt, to pay the debt that we we had, if you will, stored up with God in our sin. In other words, who paid the debt that you incurred with God? Jesus did. And since he is the God-man, the son of God, we can ask the question again, who paid the debt you incurred with God? God. God did. The Father in love sent his Son to absorb your debt of sin against him. The Son in love willingly came and paid your debt of sin on the cross. The Father lovingly promised grace to you before the foundation of the world, and the Son lovingly purchased grace for you in history at the cross. Now, in case you've missed that it's all of grace, look at the last phrase of verse seven. See, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now notice, according to the riches of his grace. Now, riches is the word for wealth or abundance or supply. So here's the question. How much grace has been shown to you in Christ's incarnation, suffering, and death on the cross, how much grace has been shown to you? The answer is, as much as is in accord with the riches of his grace or God's grace. So the standard or the measure of the grace shown to you is in Christ's redemptive work. What is it? What's the standard or the measure of the grace shown to you in Christ's redemptive work? It's according to the riches of his grace. And and I want you to hear this, it's important. In God is an infinite storehouse of grace. There's not enough sin in all the history of the world and certainly not enough sin in you to exhaust the infinite storehouse of his grace. In fact, I want to say this, our finite deeds can't even make a dent in his grace. Did you hear that? Think of it this way. Here's the thing about infinite grace, an infinite anything in God, by the way. God can pour it out. He can lavish it upon us and he has made none the poorer by it. See, I have a finite amount of money. My amount of money is more finite than some of yours, <laughs> but we all have different finite amount of money. And here's what's true of all of us. If I give you $100, I'm impoverished by that amount. $100, Right? But God has an infinite amount of grace. So if he pours out enough grace to cover the sins of the whole of creation, he is not there impoverished even one iota. That's the good news of your redemption. The grace Jesus purchased for you is according to the riches of his grace. In other words, it's infinitely greater than all your sin. It's inexhaustible. Now the son's purchased grace has brought us more than redemption. And so we could stop there, I would hope, and just worship God at that point. But let me push in because his grace has brought us more than redemption. It has brought us the revelation of the redemptive plan of God. Did you hear that? It's brought us the revelation of the redemptive plan of God. It leads to the second reason Paul praises the father. The first one is the This infinite grace has has redeemed us in Christ, if you will. The second one is the infinitely gracious plan of God has been revealed to us in Christ. It's been revealed to us. This infinitely gracious plan of God has been revealed to us in Christ. Look at Ephesians 1.8. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now again, note, which, this relative pronoun, points you back to what's just come before it, which is pointing you back to according to the riches of his grace. And the infinite riches of his grace were lavished upon us, right? They're lavished upon us, poured out upon us. Now here comes a question that's a bit more difficult. He lavished upon us this grace, in case you weren't catching it. He's redeemed you. He's forgiven you of your sins. In accord with what standard? What standard? in accord with his own grace. How high is that standard or measure? Infinite. So it's enough grace for you. And by the way, if you didn't catch it, he lavished it upon you. He graced you with it. He just overflowed with it on you. Now notice what he says, in all wisdom and insight. So here comes the question. It's a bit more difficult. Is all wisdom and insight a reference to God's wisdom and insight? or a reference to the gift of wisdom and insight he is lavishing upon us. Now, scholars argue over this, exegetes, when they work through the Greek text on this. I want to argue that I think it's referring to the gift of wisdom and insight that is ours. The infinite grace Christ purchased for us brings redemption and the revelation of that redemption. He's lavishing upon us Wisdom and insight. And I think Paul's uh, prayer helps us see that. Look at Ephesians 1.16. 1.16. You'll see this language come up again. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Here's Paul praying for the Ephesian church. Remembering you in my prayers that the God, and words, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, Paul's praying for the Ephesian church that they would have wisdom and insight into knowing and understanding, not only knowing and understanding intellectually, but knowing and understanding in the sense that they spiritually see now. They have eyes that spiritually see, ears that spiritually hear. He wants them to have insight and wisdom into God's redemptive plan, that you would understand it, that you would see all that Christ is for you, that you would understand the Father's grace to you. I'm just praying that you get it. And I think that language Wisdom and revelation, spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of Him is informing us when Paul prays that as to what He's getting at here in verse 8 that He wants, He's lavishing upon us this grace that not only redeems us, but this grace gives us wisdom and insight. This grace opens our eyes to see. You talk to someone who says to you, I appreciate that you have faith, but I don't. I wish I did, but I just can't believe. And you know what you should be praying for them? God, in your grace, lavish upon them wisdom, insight to see. That's what Paul's praying for, because they're right. When they say, I can't believe, I don't see, they're blind. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So you pray, God, lavish upon them in your grace all wisdom and insight so they might see. See, it's not enough for Christ to buy you and say to you, if you believe, then you can come to me. He takes it a step further and says, I'm not just purchasing your redemption. I'm purchasing your ability to see the truth. I'm lavishing upon you not only grace. In redemption, I'm lavishing upon you grace in revelation of the knowledge of the truth. Now look what he goes on to say here. What is the wisdom and insight he's graciously lavishing upon us? Verse nine, I've said this already, but we'll get into it more in more depth. Making known to us. See, he's lavishing upon us this wisdom and insight so he might make known to us, what? The mystery of his will. Now, so you know, a mystery, that word mysterion in the Greek, is really derived from Daniel chapter 2. Now, we're not going to go there today. But the, the, the only place where the word mystery is used in the Old Testament, actually in the Greek Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament prior to Christ and the Apostles, the word mystery is used in the book of Daniel. And what it's referring to is really usually mysteries of the kingdom of God, that God's kingdom is coming, that God's Christ is coming, and that that is partially revealed, but in the, at, at some point will be fully revealed. And what he's saying is Christ has come and fully revealed to you God's will. Hear that? It was partially Revealed in the Old Testament through types and shadows and promises, prophecies, etc. But now it's fully revealed. He's making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. That word, fullness of time, is referring to the prophetic clock. Not that time was ending, but the time has come that he promised that he prophesied. It's here, the Christ has come. Full to unite all things in Christ, in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, he's making known to us the infinitely gracious redemptive plan of God in Christ. The first creation was through the Son. You guys know that? The first creation was through the Son. I mean, S O N, the Son. God created all things through his word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? He was with God in the beginning, and all things were made what? Through him. God created all things through the Word, through his Son. Look at Colossians. Keep your hand there in Ephesians 1. Keep it there and go to Colossians chapter 1. He's speaking of Jesus, but we'll go to verse 16 Colossians 1.16. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In other words, the, the whole of the created realm, what is that? Everything that's not God, you understand? Everything that is creature, angels, humans, the universe, the earth, that's all creation, not creator. All of it was created what? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. In other words, whether physical or material or spiritual, they're created by him. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So we know the first creation is through Christ. The fall of Adam, however, brought a disunity and chasm, if you will, between heaven and earth. Sin, sin and death ended the peace between heaven and earth and brought enmity between heaven and earth. But God was pleased to dwell in Christ, we're told in Colossians 1.19. And look at Colossians 1.20 and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If you understand what Paul is saying in Colossians 1 and in Ephesians 1, he's saying that Christ is is the cosmic Christ. Catch that? He's more, so much more than just the Messiah who redeems the nation of Israel. He's the redeemer of the whole earth. He reconciles heaven and earth. And this is what Paul's getting at in Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, that he made an eternal plan, God made an eternal plan to unite all things in Christ, to reconcile all things in Christ, to send him to reconcile Christ, to reconcile all things in himself. And Jesus came in the fullness of time fulfill that plan. Now, that plan was a mystery, partially revealed in the Old Testament, but it was not fully revealed until the Christ came and accomplished it. So Jesus's historical redemptive work is revelatory, not just redemptive, but revelatory. And Paul is saying that this glorious gospel is graciously accomplished for us and graciously revealed to us, and for that the Father's praised. That's why Paul says, prays the way he does in Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, that they would get it. That's why he prays the way he does in Ephesians 3 and 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that what? Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ. Listen, the Spirit has to do that in you. You could never in your own humanity, especially in your fallen humanity, comprehend the love of God in Christ. That is a spiritual work done by the Holy Spirit. God has graciously and supernaturally opened our eyes so that we can see his plan accomplished and revealed in Christ. And Paul wants the Ephesian church to know it. He wants the Ephesian church to see it even more clearly. This is why John Owen rightly says this. Speaking of, he's going to use the word recapitulation, so I'm going to give you that beforehand. What he, in this quote, and most people hear recapitulation and go, huh? What? Okay, so he's referencing the idea of recreation. The first creation is through Christ. The second creation, the new creation is through him. In the new creation, he's reconciling, redeeming all things in himself, things in heaven and earth. He'll call the whole, the whole of that recapitulation. So you know what he's talking about. But listen to this quote. John Owen Puritan said this, there is no contemplation of the glory of Christ that ought more to affect the hearts of men, of them that do believe with delight and joy than this, of the recapitulation of all things in him. One view by faith of him in the place of God as the supreme head of the whole creation, moving, acting, guiding, and disposing of it, will bring in spiritual refreshment to a believing soul. Nothing's going to bring refreshment to your believing soul. Nothing is going to bring joy and delight to you as a believer like the thought that Christ is the head of all things, and he's reconciled all things in himself, things in heaven and things on earth. You can contemplate that the rest of your life and never exhaust it. Finally, there's a third reason, as if that isn't enough, that Paul praises the Father for our historical redemption in Christ. Look, And here's what it is. Because an infinitely gracious inheritance has been purchased by Christ an infinitely gracious inheritance has been purchased by him. Now you might say that can be caught up in the language of redemption, but Paul chooses to tease it out further and say it's not just that we have redemption now, it's that our reward to come, our inheritance to come, we also have now. Christ obtained it. Look at verse 11. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. We've obtained it. Now, he's the one who purchased it for us, isn't he? But we've now obtained it, an inheritance in him in Christ. Christ purchased an inheritance for us, and in him we receive it. He is the heir of all things, and as those who are united to him through faith, we are co-heirs with him. That great last day reward is ours because Christ is ours because the Father loved us and graciously chose us, because Christ loved us and graciously, if you will, purchased grace for us. That was intentionally redundant. And on what basis are we receiving this inheritance in him? Look at the basis. In him we've obtained an inheritance. Here's the basis. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We receive this inheritance because he's predestined us to it. And in accord with what? What's the standard by or basis upon which he's predestined us to it? According to the purpose of him. That word purpose is kind intention. According to his kind intention of him. And in case you're not following who's doing this purposing, this predestining of him who works all things, According to what counsel? The counsel of his own will. Now, if you want more on that, you can go to last week's sermon. I tease out that language more from verses four through six. But you were graciously predestined to receive the grace of redemption and revelation and inheritance in Christ. To understand that language more, I said, see last week's sermon. But but here's what I want to get at today. You were graciously predestined to that end, and thus you were given the gift of faith through which you received Christ. Now, in order for me to work out how God can be that sovereign and how you can still be responsible to believe, is to ask me to enter the counsel of God's holy will. Do you see what the text says? He's worked out all things according to the counsel of his will. I wasn't a part of that group. (laughs) I didn't make that decision. I didn't work that out. I wasn't there. I have no idea what that looks like. Counsel of his will. And who can know the mind of the Lord, Paul says, or who has ever been his counselor? None of us have, so please don't give him counsel as to how we ought to work it out. Our tendency as humans is to want to say, Well, let me give the Lord counsel as to how this worked out. You can never be his counselor. You never were his counselor. You never will be his counselor. But what was the ultimate end or goal of this gracious, historical, redemptive work of the Son? Look at verse 12. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. And herein we find the second facet in which the Father is praised for our Trinitarian salvation. He is praised as his people are saved through Christ. And God's praise in our salvation is our good. Hear that? For our eternal good and his eternal praise are inextricably linked together. The Son will not fail to glorify the Father. He will not fail to redeem all those whom the Father's given to him, and that is good news for us. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a 19th century British Baptist preacher, speaking of how our election in eternity and our redemption in history and our inheritance in the eschaton, the end time, the last day, are such good news said this. Listen to what he said. They, meaning God's people, are not only his by choice, but by purchase. He has bought and paid for them to the utmost farthing. Hence, about his title, there can be no dispute. Not with corruptible things as with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's portion has been fully redeemed. There is no mortgage on his estate. No suits can be raised by opposing claimants. The price was paid in open court, and the church is the Lord's Freehold forever. See the blood mark upon all the chosen, invisible to the human eye, but known to Christ, for the Lord knows them that are his. He forgetteth none of those whom he has redeemed from among men. He counts the sheep for whom he laid down his life and remembers well the church for which he gave himself. Church, we are Christ's, and he is ours. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So may Christ never be eclipsed in our view. But may we always see everything by him to the glory of God the Father. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would understand and know and rejoice in the fact that your son is our mediator, that we come to you, that we have access to you, our father, through him. That he is our redeemer who came into history. And purchased us by the shedding of his blood. And Gave us the forgiveness of sins. Not in, the, in accord with some human standard, but in accord with the riches of his grace the infinite storehouse that you have, Father. We're thankful that you have lavished that upon us, that you have given us the gift of revelation to see that Christ is ours and we are his, that he has purchased this for us, and that we can know that our inheritance is secure with him. Father, that, that may we, as those who hope in Christ, may we be to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together.